it's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me, as always, Mr. Odd himself, John Chalkowski. Hello. So, today, we decided to look at through history and, uh, you know, American history is proliferated with uh, these, these, which we call American heroes, you know, or people who would venture uh, and would become those names of legend, which uh, all of us, even school children, know to this day. Uh, George Washington being a prime example. Um, maybe Grover Cleveland, you know, but he, people know who he is, right? Teddy Roosevelt, you know, these are big names. They, uh, have any of them ever stepped foot in Pittsburgh? You know, of all these people, you know, like, uh, you assume that most presidents, at least, would at least visit Pittsburgh. But uh, what did they have to say about this town when they came through here? So was it just, um, you know, just passing through and, 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 and nothing to say? Or did they write something down? Luckily for us, they these quotes by these famous people have been written down and they have been passed down through generations. And uh, we are going to spend some time today and kind of go through some of the most famous quotes by these famous people and what they had to say about Pittsburgh, including a few surprises, which may come as a total shock to the listeners of what some of these people had to say. And we'll even dig into the maybe most famous quote about Pittsburgh, um, Pittsburgh uh, description that was written in the Atlantic Journal uh, about Pittsburgh. It's hell with his lid off. Right. So, Andrew, what famous person in history do you want to hear about first? Um, Well, I know Mark Twain came to Pittsburgh. He's one of my favorite writers. Mark Twain did come here to Pittsburgh. And, you know, he also is generally attributed to hell with the lid off. Okay, so is Charles Dickens, Uh, except it was all another man named James Pardon. Uh, who we'll talk about a little later. But Mark Twain came here, believe it or not, ready, on the eve of the publishing of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Wow. Yeah. He chose Pittsburgh, not New Orleans, not some kind of, um, you know, southern place or something that you would imagine yeah, Mark Twain being in. Yeah, exactly. Not along a river boat. He was along a river, but that happened to be the Marne <laughs> or the Ohio. And uh, he, like many other people who come to visit Pittsburgh, would... Go to the top of Mount Washington. That's assumingly even on the Duquesne Incline or the Mon Incline, which would have existed when he was coming through town. I mean, the Duquesne Incline was founded in 1870, so people have been using it for the same reason they use it today to get a nice view, uh, even if that was a smoky filled view of the city of Pittsburgh. And Mark Twain on December 31st, New Year's Eve, right? He's in Pierre in Pittsburgh in 1884, and he says. After our show last night, we visited Mount Washington and took a bird's-eye view of your city by moonlight. With the moon soft and mellow, floating in the heavens, we sauntered about the mount and looked down on the lake of fire and flame. It looked like a miniature hell with a lid off. It was a vision, a wonderful vision. It tended to frighten. This view is not a deliciously beautiful as one would suppose. If one could be calm and resolute, he could look upon the picture and still live. Otherwise... Your city is a beauty. So in typical Mark Twain fashion, he uh, describes Pittsburgh in only words that he could have used, <laughs> to put it nicely. And uh, But, you know, 
one of the the Pittsburgh's biggest claims to fame is we're the only city in the United States that was personally chosen by a, 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 a future president of the United States. The only city that was actually like pointed at, looked at, and written down and declared, you know, that'd be a good place for a city. And that was none other than George Washington. His, uh, he has many quotes because he kept a detailed diary of his whole journey here through Pittsburgh every single time he came through Pittsburgh. But his uh, first time he came here was in November of 1753. He again climbed up to the Mount Washington, uh, which at that time was just called Coal Hill. He writes in his journal, I spent the time in viewing the rivers in the land of the fork, which I think is extremely well situated for a fort, as it has absolute command of both rivers. The land at the point is 20 or 25 feet above the common surface of the water and a considerable bottom of flat, well-timbered land all around it, very convenient for building. And in that, he's talking directly about the future site of Pittsburgh. But he's not the only president to come around here. You know, like we said before, in fact, our he was never well, he was never actually president as he coming through Pittsburgh. You know, this didn't happen until much later in his life. Uh, and the first official presidential visitor to Pittsburgh was James Monroe. Well, I think it's interesting how you just read Mark Twain and George Washington and how a little bit over a hundred years you go from you know, a frontier area to hell with the lid off yeah. of the industry. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, from beaver trapping and, uh, you know, fishing in the main kind of industries of Pittsburgh, which were boat building back then, uh, although that wouldn't even come until a little bit later after George Washington left, but the uh, to see the duality of just, what, 100 years, and also to look at that 100 years from when Mark Twain wrote it, so 1884, 1984. Right. Uh, think about how much has changed in Pittsburgh and just the view and the landscape and through smoke control and, and pollution. And uh, I mean, the first Earth Day ever was held here in Pittsburgh, the celebration. So that goes to show you like how much we've ch- come to change. And it really is due to this one guy's article. <laughs> and what you can tell reading or hearing Mark Twain's quote that he sees the beauty of the town, but he was so against industry yeah um and you know the gilded age was kind of his his thing you know everybody made money except you know the little guy Mm -hmm. um and he said you know other than that your city's beautiful (laughs) right he probably said with tongue-in-cheek but still it's there you know the the landscape is there but you just have hell with the lid off right (laughs) yeah yeah no doubt i mean like uh and you'll see a pattern as we go through some of these uh these people, you know, and what they kind of say, which share a similar inflection to what you were just saying and how while it's dirty, ugly, smoky, you know, and all these other adjectives, it still remained a beauty. And uh, here is a good uh, a good example and another example of the very first presidential visitor to Pittsburgh. That was James Monroe. So he gave an address right as the president here uh, while in office. Okay, and this was on uh, Saturday, September 6th, 1817. So about 200 years ago now. Uh, and he said, Returning from a tour along a long portion of our Atlantic and inland frontiers, which was undertaking from a sense of duty, I am happy to pass through this town, and I have always been much gratified by the friendly reception which was given me by the selective common councils and the mayor, aldermen, and citizens of Pittsburgh. So while not very descriptive, still, it's a nice 
you know, a nice gesture, a nice uh, thing. He didn't write this about every town, uh, and uh, he wasn't necessarily welcome in every town. However, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, respect for the city remained. Um, Marquis de Lafayette was a French soldier of commander who later got uh, land here for him, fought for the British and built Fort Fayette, or was named after him, and Fayette County is named after him today. And he was uh, one of the most early people in the early politics and the early uh, different things that were coming here through Pittsburgh. And he wrote to a firm here in Pittsburgh, well, the first glass manufacturing plant in Pittsburgh, right? The the Bakewell Glass, which is still, I think, around today. And uh, he wrote a letter to the directors of the Bakewell Glass, right? And he says in 1825, the patriotic inspiration I have felt the sight of Pittsburgh's manufacturers and is still enhanced by the friendly reception I have met from you and by the most acceptable favor you are pleased to offer me and accept my affectionate thanks, good wishes, and regard. Pretty cool that, like, somebody from major person would come and say some interesting things about pittsburgh mm-hmm. same goes for john quincy adams so john quincy adams was here uh in another um gave another speech he was this by this time he was an ex-president right and this was in 1843 he was a uh was he a representative at the time because i believe he went back to the house after. that's right yeah, yeah that's exactly right and uh, so this was reported in the uh, pittsburgh gazette and he said and may the choicest blessings of the almighty god rest upon you both as a corporation in pittsburgh and as individuals, and lead you to a greater improvement of the advantages you so richly possess. This is not bad. Uh, Andrew Carnegie. You know, when you think back about, you know, Andrew Carnegie, you almost assume that he's from Pittsburgh, you know, like he's just born and raised a Pittsburgher, and which in part he was. So he was, uh, even though born in Scotland, uh, came here as a little boy, uh, lived down at the Point District, which was kind of the... Uh, the industrial railroad slums of Pittsburgh is basically the point today. Uh, but that was filled with railroad yards and, and ugly uh, buildings and shacks. And, and it was just not the cleanest of all areas. It could always get flooded. It was um, hard to come out of that area. And especially for someone like Carnegie, who did this, it's, uh, it's important to not forget where he began. And uh, he gave an address. Uh, you know, there's, there's many things you could possibly quote. Carnegie of saying, uh, but this one comes from 1911. So this is right before he passed away, and he gave an address about growing up in Pittsburgh and what it's like to just be Pittsburgh proud. And uh, he says it's 1911 on Founders Day uh, at the Carnegie Institute. He says it is delightful to find myself with you today in an old home, this dear old Pittsburgh, and to see so many visible proofs of the usefulness of its institution to which so many of my dear friends have and are contributing invaluable service without money and without reward, animated solely by the patriotic desire to labor for the good of the city and of their home. Although non-resident, it must not be thought that I have ceased to follow the local matters pertaining to the city, and certainly Pittsburgh should be consolidate the populations around her and get credit for being the most important center which she is. So, I find that nice because he he talks about regardless if you're getting paid to do so, you know, it's your patriotic duty to Pittsburgh to promote it and to talk about it and to love it. It's essentially what I do and what, you know, we all do is is, um, talk about Pittsburgh, enjoy Pittsburgh, share Pittsburgh, have other people learn about Pittsburgh just for like the literally the common good. You know, I, I do for the people. Well, if it's Carnegie, you know, he he's not going to want to pay you anyway. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's at least right. old Carnegie. This, 
This right. version of Carnegie that you're reading the quote is after he's had time to reflect on his fortune. That's right. That same years uh in fact he was uh he sold his portion of u.s steel uh to jp morgan, morgan which he then became the richest man on earth because of that sale so uh there's estimates i think uh, by the time he died well he gave it's interesting for carnegie because he amassed such great wealth okay that it was too much and he knew that and he didn't really realize that before even though he was a millionaire he never realized yeah, what happens when you get $500 million or billion dollars when people are making $30 a week? So he realized that there was such you know, a difference between those two classes that you needed to do something about it. And he wrote this book called The Gospel of Wealth where he talks that it's like in your greatest good to give, if you can, give back everything you can to, you know, to help the future. And to help the society that you help make. And he did that. He spent the rest of his life doing exactly that. And gave away all of his money. With the exception of, a, a, I mean, he still had some money when he died. But not uh, not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions. He gave that away. I mean, we know the Carnegie Museum and Carnegie Library here in Pittsburgh. But there's like a hundred Carnegie libraries all well, over the United States. There's and, Carnegie libraries on island nations. Yeah, there's there's one in Peru. There's one in Colombia. There's one in in the UK. There's one in Australia. There's one in China. So it's the uh, you know how these things kind of spread out all from his initiative to give back to the greater good. There was a four part series or uh, that the History Channel did a couple years ago called "The Men Who Built America." Yeah, and uh, I forget the train man that the. He had a monopoly on the trains, yeah. and then there was Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, and Andrew Carnegie. And even though some of the things that Carnegie did are not excusable mm-hmm. uh, and they're you know wrong, he still seemed like kind of the nicest one out of the. Yeah, he yeah. had the realization once he did. You know, he wasn't perfect. No, um, he he kind of treated a lot of Pittsburghers badly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, toward the end of his life, he it seemed like he tried to make amends by yeah. giving away, and and it was in some regards a PR mm-hmm. thing. But yeah, I think well, he I also mean, genuinely cared about. He did. Like it, it's clear when you read through his that book, and when you read any anything in his later life, uh, it's clear how much he really did care for the city of Pittsburgh, especially you know with with donating all this stuff, but also just humanity in general. Like, he realized that it's his responsibility now, just like Bill Gates has or Jeff Bezos on part, <laughs> right, has to realize that you have that much money, uh, you got to do something with it for good and not, um, you know, just live in a castle, even though Carnegie did live in a castle <laughs> in Scotland. So, anyways, we move on to our next guy, right, Grover Cleveland. So, uh, Grover Cleveland has a kind of an interesting connection because he, um, his family, he married a girl that was from, I think, Washington, PA. And I used to go visit her all the time, you know, on the farm and like, you know, the family that was still there and, and he had oil investments here in Western Pennsylvania. And, uh, he was also the first president to ever attend a baseball game outside of Washington, DC. That was here in Pittsburgh. So same with, uh, Taft, uh, went to a baseball game here in Pittsburgh too, which is kind of, you know, just unusual little factoid now that you're going to remember. But he called, um, Pittsburgh Vulcan's Jewels. 
Right. And this was an, a speech that he gave as an ex-president now coming back to visit. And uh, this was in 1901. And he said, the alchemy of civilization's evolution is full of splendid wonders, but no transmutation will ever be exhibited more startling and impressive than the creation of the bright jewels of education, art, and music from the grime and noise of your furnaces. And no gem will ever have a more astonishing setting than the Carnegie Institute within your smoky city. Carnegie Mellon right. today. Right. So he's uh, – and, and a lot of people, when they come through, they would just state the obvious, right? Teddy Roosevelt was no different. And Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the, 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 the infamous, you know, character that he was, comes here to Pittsburgh. He actually uh, would go out on these hunting expeditions and shoot, like, wild, rare animals in Africa and donate them to the Carnegie Museum. <laughs> so I didn't know this until fairly recently, but uh, the black rhinoceros, which is there at the Carnegie Museum, is the one that Theodore, you know, Theodore Roosevelt actually shot himself and had shipped here to Pittsburgh. Stole, uh, I think a copy of it is on display. But... Pretty cool, you know, like how this uh, guy had some kind of weird connection with Carnegie and Carnegie Institute, even though this is long after Carnegie was dead. Uh, and he says here about Pittsburgh that it was a, a typical American city. And uh, what he says is there is no more typical American city than Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh, by its Americanism, gives a lesson to the entire United States. Pittsburgh has not been built up by talking about it. Your tremendous concerns were built by men who actually did the work. You made Pittsburgh ace high when it could have been deuce high. There is not a Pittsburgh man who did not earn his success through his deeds. So, you know, it really is a legitimate great quote, you know, about how Pittsburghers work for what they want. And and Pittsburgh is a place where you can do something like that. And this is after his presidency? This was in, yes, this was after his presidency in 1917. Okay, so he had gone on that, he had gone on a hunting expedition in Africa for... A couple months, and that's when he sent. And it's kind of funny how it all circles back because it was Roosevelt that fought people like J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller, mm-hmm. and to a lesser extent Carnegie to break up, um, you know, the monopolies. Right and now, fast forward less than twenty years later, and he's donating mm-hmm. animals to an institution that was founded by one of those people. Yeah, the king of them, <laughs> you know. So the and essentially. And, uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, but it's, it's interesting how he talks about the fortitude of Pittsburgh workers and how if you want something, you go out and you get it and you can do it. And, uh, so Abraham Lincoln, right? Abraham Lincoln comes to town, uh, his one and only occasion on Valentine's day, 1861. He's on route, right? From to Washington, DC to go to his actual inauguration. So he's just voted in. He's traveling by train across America. He's making stops along the way. He gets here to Pittsburgh, and he uh, he does give a small speech, uh, although it has nothing to do with Pittsburgh. Uh, but he talks about uh, trade deals, you know, and uh, trade deals with other states and other um, uh, small, you know, European countries at the time. Really, really riveting stuff. Real riveting, you know. But he did have one thing to say about Pittsburgh, and it's brief, it's short, and quick, and simple, and it's a good uh, little quote. And he goes. Allegheny County, the Banner County of the Union, the end. <laughs> right, so that's the quote. <laughs> so that's what Abraham Lincoln had to say about Pittsburgh. The one and only thing he said about Pittsburgh, like we talked about before, you had a, uh, you know, all these famous writers like Mark Twain and other people, like this other guy we're going to talk about a little bit. But Charles Dickens did come here to Pittsburgh, 
uh, and that was in 1842. He traveled all throughout America, not just Pittsburgh, but America in general. And uh, there's legends that are attached to his time coming here to Pittsburgh, which is interesting. The one biggest legend was that at the uh, Western Penitentiary, which used to be located where the Pittsburgh's aviary is today, uh, it was like this big castle-looking, strange building, like very medieval, no heat, no air conditioning, of course, you know, no, uh, just bars in the window. It was a bad, uh, you know, you get sick and die just from being in there. The way they treated the prisoners there were not exactly of the most uh, thrilling of uh, ways you could treat a prisoner. And uh, they, in most infamously, uh, would chain people with these balls and chains and make them wear heavy, you know, steel chains around their necks and, and feet and arms and, and, uh, gave this kind of impression of being, you know, just really, really imprisoned. And some people say, including Dickens himself hinted at it, that when he wrote the next year, uh, Christmas Carol, okay, which is a story that he wrote the next year after visiting Pittsburgh, that he based the role and the idea of what Jacob Marley would look at like after he died, uh, on the conditions that he witnessed here at Western Penitentiary in Pittsburgh. So some, uh, so Pittsburgh helped inspire <laughs> part of a Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The uh, the one of telling you what not to do. You know, Jacob Marley's. You know, but yeah, that is true. I mean, you could find many references to that exact incident when he talks about how uh, it became a, um, you know, just the conditions. But he did have more to say about Pittsburgh than just. Uh, writing it and using that Jacob Marley, you know, character based upon a prisoner that he saw. And what he said about Pittsburgh in 1842 is, uh, again, a cynical guy like Mark Twain. You know, he wasn't exactly all, you know, serious all the time. <laughs> and uh, he goes, Pittsburgh is like Birmingham in England. At least it's townspeople say so. Setting aside the streets, the shops, the houses, the wagons, factories, public buildings, and population, perhaps it may be. It certainly has a great quantity of smoke hanging over it, and it's famous for its ironworks. Besides, the prison, the town has a pretty arsenal and other institutions. We lodged at the most excellent hotel, and we were admirably served. As usual, it was full of boarders, but it was very large, and we had a broad colonnade on every story of the house. So, you know, that's a nice little brief snippet about uh, what he wrote about Pittsburgh. And... um they're interesting tales, you know, where in. But there's a couple other sayings. So now, you know, you could go down a list and read about quotes from books that people talk about Pittsburgh or books written about Pittsburgh or songs about Pittsburgh. And this next thing I'm going to uh, read to you here is from a, uh, one of my favorite songs about Pittsburgh. It's the lyrics, okay? And it's by Loudon Wainwright III. So now you might recognize him as the author of uh, Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road or uh, a song Daughter that was used in many films. A great song. But he went to Carnegie Mellon here in Pittsburgh and uh, and wrote the song about Pittsburgh while living here. And it was his very first album, just untitled, just called Album Number One. So this isn't James Brown just yelling Pittsburgh PA. That's right. Right. Oh, okay. You know, or, or any of the multitude the of songs. Heads. The Talking Heads. Or even Chuck Berry, right? Pittsburgh, PA, you know, and uh, the Charlie Daniels band. That's Just go right. and lay your hand on a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, <laughs> That's and I think right. you're going to finally understand. Or, uh, or Alabama song about Pittsburgh. There's a lot of bands that have songs about Pittsburgh, even in uh, a song about Mister Small's Millville, right? By uh, Ween. Anyways, Ode to Pittsburgh by Loudon Wainwright the Third. Now, you know, when writing a song, you have to take liberties and 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 use. Uh, it's almost like poetry, you know, per se. So. 
the lyrics to the song, which I recommend that you YouTube or go listen or go buy if you could track it down. He said, Pennsylvania's Western daughter with your tubes of liberty, princess of pig iron slaughter with your boyfriend Carnegie. Oh, you were stained glass. You were smoke stacked. You were laid in cobblestone. You were trolley car tracked. And for you, the red sky shone. And while thieves and black sleeved buccaneers pitched and kicked their orbs, it was for you that I cheered my wild cheers in the field of Mr. Forbes. I sent sentiments from Shadyside. I paid homage to the hill. Oh, no, it cannot be denied, and Colacoke can't kill. Let the trees in Shenley grow strong. May the bagpipes never burst. Let the Allegheny roll right along. May I thirst that Duquesne thirst. May your steel mills stand forever in your learning tower, too. May Mellon remain clever. Good luck, and God bless you. That's fantastic. Isn't it? Yeah, I love that. Uh, and that whole album is a great album. Uh, you know, like a real nice folk album. Uh, but totally worth listening to the actual song that goes along with that. Uh, because he did, uh, I mean, that's those are words that someone who only was from here or was living here would know. And, uh, I mean, Field of Mr. Forbes, what a great way to put Forbes Field, you know. So we uh, we get to... Now, probably the most famous story about a mention of Pittsburgh by somebody, and it was in a major publication, and forever stained the history of our city. And that was an article written by The Atlantic Magazine in January of 1868 by James Parton. He was traveling through the city, and he decided to... You know, write a description about what he saw and everything from the way it looked at the train station to the people working at the hotels to uh, people on the streets to the shopping departments to everything. So um, he is the one who most infamously wrote that we're Pittsburgh with hell with the lid off. And uh, but. He wasn't really necessarily trying to be some kind of uh, jerk about it, uh, per se. He was really trying to give you a good description of what the city looked like. And uh, you have to kind of read it in context to fully understand. I never really did. I never read this in context. I always just saw that one line. You know, everyone sees that one yeah. line. And it, it's, um, I'm like, well, what does he mean by that one line, right? And uh, it's a big, long article. And it's worth reading the long article, although I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read the part. They talks about that famous quote. So he wakes up early in the morning, right? January 1868. He's here in Pittsburgh. And he goes on to say that what energy and what a fury of industry Pittsburgh is. All Pittsburgh at work before the dawn of day. This surpasses Chicago. What world, what would luxurious St. Louis say of such a uh, reckless devotion to the business as this? Resolving such thoughts, it occurred to us at length that it would be only proper for an inquisitive traveler to follow this example and do in Pittsburgh as the Pittsburghers have already done. This bold concept was executed. A match was felt for and found. The gas was lighted, and the first duties of the day were performed with that feeling of moral superiority to mankind in general, which is apt to steal over the soul of a person who dresses by gaslight for the first time in many years. Would Brown do this? Would Jones? Would Robinson? What vigor there must be in that traveler who gets up to study his town before the first streak of dawn. So he's talking about um, 
that before people were even generally awake in normal places, people were wide awake and working hard here in Pittsburgh. He goes on to say, there is one evening scene in Pittsburgh, which I shall describe to you, which no visitor should ever miss. Owing to the abruptness of its hill behind the town, Mount Washington he's talking about, there is a street along the edge of the buff from which you can look directly down upon all parts of the city which lie low, near the level of the rivers. On the evening of this dark day, we were conducted at the edge of the abyss and looked over the iron railing upon the, one of the most striking spectacles we have ever beheld. The entire space lying bef- between the hills was filled with the blackest of all smokes, from out of which a hidden chimney sent forth tongues of flames. Well, from the depths of the abyss came up a noise of hundreds of steam hammers. There would be moments when no flames would be visible, but soon the wind would force the smoky curtains aside, and the whole black expanse would be dimly lidded by the dull reefs of fire. It is an unprofitable business. View hunting. But if anyone would enjoy a spectacle as striking as Niagara Falls, he may do so by simply walking up the long hill to Cliff Street in Pittsburgh and look it over, hell, with its lid off. In the context, it's so much more. Yeah, it sounds a lot better, really. You know, like it's not so. It's, it's not an insult. No, not at all. In fact, uh, I'll read you the very last, the next paragraph, right, which is where he completes this article, and it's worth reading because he does talk about that exact fact. So, such is the kind day in which Pittsburgh boasts. The first feeling of a stranger is one of comparison for the people who are compelled to live such an atmosphere. When hard pressed, a son of Pittsburgh will not deny that the smoke. Uh, has its inconveniences. He admits that it does prevent some inconsiderable people from living there who, but for the prejudice against the smoke in which they have been educated, would become residents of this place. He insists, however, that the smoke of bitterness coal kills malaria and even saves eyesight. (laughs) (laughs) The smoke, he informs you, is a perpetual public sunshade and a color subduer. There is no glare in Pittsburgh except from fire and red-hot iron. No object meets the eye that demands much of that organ, and consequently, diseases the eyes are remarkably rare. It is interesting to hear a Pittsburgher discourse on the subject, as much relieves the mind of the visitor to be told, and to have the assertion prove that the smoke, so far from being an evil, is actually a blessing. The atmospheres say the Pittsburgh philosophers, convey to men no imitation on the poison um, which they are laden. Are we inhaled death while enjoying every breath we draw? But its smoke is an evil only to the imagination, and it destroys every property of the atmosphere which is hostile to life, in proof of which the traveler is referred to the tables of mortality, which show that Pittsburgh is the most favorable city in the world to longevity. All this is comforting in the benevolent mind. So more so is the fact that the fashion of living a few miles out of the smoke is beginning to prevail among the people of Pittsburgh. Villagers are now uh, springing up as far as 20 miles away. So he's talking about places like, you know, Cranberry and south, deep in the South Hills and all over Pittsburgh. You know, uh, people are realizing that we could start moving out of the city Uh, to which every businessman repair and which consequence of having inhaled the smoke all day they feel they're able to bear the common country atmosphere through the night it is probable that in the coming years the smoky abyss of pittsburgh will be occupied only by factories and only by works and that nearly the whole population will deny themselves the privilege of living within that city with three rivers and a half a dozen railroads the people have ready means to access the places of almost unequaled beauty and pleasantness around the country 
So there you go. So it's not really that bad as you think, right? Yeah, I mean, he's saying, don't worry, you're not going to get skin cancer, but you'll get every other kind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, lung cancer, guaranteed come to Pittsburgh, you know, experience that. So, you know, mesothelioma, yeah, we got that too. You know, it's interesting how these people um, interpreted early Pittsburgh, but that I wanted to read that entire quote from him and not just that one liner because it's worth mentioning and, and to seeing that it's not all bad. However, it does give a very good description of what Pittsburgh looked like in 1868. And he goes on to talk about, like I said, the hotels he was staying at, other places around Pittsburgh, visiting some of these mills. It's a cool article. Uh, it's in the Atlantic Journal, 1868. We could keep on going. I mean, there's... So many quotes that I was researching. I mean, stuff from books, uh, like from Wonder Boys even, or uh, you know, other books that were more recently written that take place in Pittsburgh, which do give a great description of the city. Well, maybe we'll do an updated one since this was Yeah, older. we can do 20th century Pittsburgh quotes, yeah. right? Because uh, it is interesting to find out what people said in 1788 or you know, 1812, even if it's only just a couple of sentences. It's, it's, it's good to uh, just kind of see how Pittsburgh was viewed in the eyes of others and people who were just passing through and traveling through. And luckily, these people were famous or infamous enough to come visit our city and write about it and talk about it. And uh, and, and we will get in someday, uh, talk about what some other people had to say about Pittsburgh, including uh, very famous inventors or uh, famous musicians or famous uh, actors, you know, uh, and uh, the more pop culture references to Pittsburgh uh, we'll get into, uh, even though that Hell with the Lid Off story is technically the pop culture reference to this day. I don't think I've ever read an article about Pittsburgh that doesn't at least mention that one article, uh, which is kind of sad, but it's, uh, it gives everyone the wrong impression. So hear it from the horse's mouth right here, right? Hear it from their actual journals, diaries, and uh, without further ado, that's it for Pitt.